Everybody there? Romans 15. Let me begin with a couple of questions and a quote. I only have two quotes today. Uh, hopefully they will edify you. Here's my first question. Do you love the Lord? Don't answer out loud. Do you love the Lord? How is your love for God this morning? Second question is this. Do you love God's people? Like, can you honestly in your heart say, I love the Lord, not perfectly, I've come up short, and I do love God's people. I love God's people. I hope you can say yes and yes to both of those, but with those in mind, let's hear what Richard Halverson has to say to us. A little lengthy quote, but I want to use it this morning as by way of introduction before we read the text. Here's what he writes. So evaluate yourself this morning. Halverson writes, quote, Differences are normal in the Christian church. Skipping forward a little bit, he says, diversity is the essence of the body of Christ. In my note, I circled diversity, body, because just a few months ago we talked about how our bodies have different parts that do different things. It is of an essence in the body of Christ that we have diversity. That's a good thing. Back to his quote. He says, of course, there are some things, this is important for you to evaluate yourself, there are some things on which Christians must agree. So we have diversity, we have differences, but there are some things we must agree. And right now you should be thinking, must, that's pretty strong. Then he says, not to agree on these is not to be a Christian. And you're like, whoa, we've been talking about all this diversity. Weaker in the faith, Christians, stronger in the faith. The weaker in the faith, they have more rules. The stronger in the faith, realize you don't have to have all of those rules. We're saved by grace. We don't earn God's favor. We don't earn God's pleasure. We live in love with Him, and He directs our path. But some people have a lot of man-made rules, and they're weak in the faith. We've got strong in the faith. So you've got all of these. But you're saying there's some things we must agree on? Halverson continues, he says, not to agree on these is not to be a Christian. And right now you should be thinking, what are these things we must agree on that define who are Christian and who are not? And he gives us a little list, and you can tell what it centers on. Here's his quote. Not to agree on these is not to be a Christian. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That He is the Son of God. That he laid down his life upon the cross of Calvary for the salvation of man. That the problem in history is sin and the solution of that problem is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. On these, all Christians agree as well as on many other things. I want to ask you. Do you believe that list with everything that is in you, in the core of your being, here it is again, do you in your core being believe, trust, Jesus is not just, oh yeah, he's a Lord, he's the Lord. Has there, listen, has there ever been a time in your life where you said, Jesus, you are my Lord? If you're sitting there saying, I don't remember consciously doing that, you might not be a Christian. Can you honestly say, Jesus, right now sitting here, uh, I'm such a little kid and I don't remember all the details, but Jeff, I can tell you right now, Jesus is my Lord. You've got to believe that with everything that's in you. I'm not saying you always surrender to your Lord, but you acknowledge He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He did lay down His life on a cross at Calvary on purpose for the sins of man. Sin is the issue. It is not God's fault. It is our fault. And there is a solution. The blood of Jesus Christ is. Blood, I don't understand it all. But blood is the solution to the problem. Sin. And then he concludes. This is why I brought it in. He says, but there are many things in which we differ. And Paul in this particular passage is discussing our attitude when we differ. I'm looking around this room. You know what I recognize? There's a lot of differences in this room. Not just physically and age and culture and other things. Where you were reared and how you were reared. And of course we have our own little version of Christianity. Sometimes that we put on southeastern United States 21st century version of it. So we have a lot of differences. These things we must agree on. But what about when we are different? Some of you 
will have no qualms, no scruples. I keep using that word. Hesitation, no doubt about doing something. But someone else in here, literally, you would feel like a sinner if you did what someone else does or does, does not do. You struggle with that. They don't. And by the way, there's some people who do some things and they don't struggle with them and they should because they're forbidden in the Word of God. But there are things that are not in the Word of God that some in here you really struggle with. That's just wrong. That's not... Somebody sitting here this morning, you've already seen something in the service and your, your heart is literally doing this. I just don't know that I agree with that. That's not right. That's different than I'm used to. But here's the problem. You have no Bible reason. There's no Bible reason. And that's just life. We all are there. We all have things. I, I constantly find out new things that were ingrained in me as a child. I believe those. And then I find out later, I only believe those because it was, I was taught that when I was three, four, five years old. I was, it was, again, reinforced over and over in the culture that I've lived in. And it's not even a Bible thing. It's not a right or a wrong. It's just, I thought it was. And so what do we do when we bring all of these into our fellowship each week? We can have problems unless we approach these things biblically. Would you read with me Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. This is our text today. So after four weeks on this same subject, you can see we're really, wow, why did they put the chapter division here? I have no idea. Verse 1. We who are strong. By the way, if you, you should have caught that. You say, well, I haven't been here throughout. The strong are those, I'm going to say, have a Bible-educated conscience. And that's as opposed to the weak who maybe have some Bible-educated conscience, but also some man educated conscience and they probably have more lists the, the weak have more lists of do's and don'ts and mandatory things and forbidden things and the strong in the faith a little different how we would look at it the strong in the faith actually have more liberty probably know more about the truths of scripture when you really peel it away so Paul's main address today is to the strong again verse 1 we who are strong so if you're sitting there saying, I think I'm one of the strong in the faith, here we go. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. The King James, I believe, uses the word in the infirmities of the weak, the idea of the weaknesses of the weak. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We have an obligation. Bear with their infirmities Bear with their weaknesses, their failings. Don't just go through life pleasing yourself. Verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69 verse 9, Paul does this, Jesus did this. They pull this verse out of Psalms written a thousand years earlier. They apply it to Jesus and here's what it's saying. Christ in essence is saying, Father, the reproaches of mankind who hated you have set themselves up as your enemies. They hate you. I'm going into that earth knowing it's going to fall on me because Jesus is God coming into the earth. Verse 3 again. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days. Think about that. Read that verse again. What is that? It's going to be very obvious before the end of the verse. Paul says, for whatever was written in former days, as he's writing in 56 AD, whatever was written in former days, what do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the, what we call... The law, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Bible of their day. They did not have all of the New Testament. Watch. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Yes, primarily intended interpretation-wise for those people, but we learn things from it. We get instruction from it. Paul's saying, use it. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That still applies to us here 2,000 years later. That through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he prays a prayer. But he tells the Romans his prayer. It's kind of a strange way of doing it here. I'm telling you what my prayer is, but I'm kind of praying it to God. But I'm letting you in on it. You're getting to hear out loud what I pray. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice, keep seeing this, harmony, together, one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So you read that and you're already hopefully putting together, I see two or three themes that seem to be a little dominant in this text. The message today is primarily to the strong in the faith. Again, three things I want to point out today. Number one, would you see this? The strong in the faith have an obligation. The strong have an obligation. So you need to identify yourself. If you are the weak in the faith, you say, Jeff, I have many, many lists of things and I have lots of do's and lots of don'ts and I really can't defend them in the Scripture, but I have many, many of them. And I've been saved for 20 years. And I might ask you this. Why are you still weak in the faith? And we'll finish there today. Why are you still weak in the faith? Is that acceptable to you? But today's message to the strong in the faith, and here's what he says. Strong in the faith, listen, you have an obligation. You have an obligation. Look at verse 1. We who are strong. See what Paul did? Paul puts himself in with the group of strong in the faith believers. He's not bragging. He's just saying, this is the way it is. In fact, I'm putting myself under this because this is a place of responsibility. This is not the easiest place to be. God expects more from us. We then, who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. See that word, bear with? If, I were to, if you were to put that in a sentence, you would probably, in connotation, think of it this way. Bear with, endure the weak. Put up with the weak. You may think of the word tolerate the weak. So is Paul telling us, hey, you strong in the faith, put up with the weak in the faith, tolerate them, endure them and their failings. Can I tell you something? It means those things, but it means more than those things. It also means this, verse 1 again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with. It means come along beside the weak in the faith Christian who's going through life with excess moral baggage. Again, their, their conscience is constantly being smitten. That's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. They're going through life thinking many, many things are wrong and really they're not. So what do you do? Do you just steamroll them? No. Come along beside them. Bear with them. Help them carry a load that you yourself don't have. Like, I don't have all of those things, but I need to bear that with them. Yes, I tolerate. Yes, I endure. Yes, I put up with. But more than that, I need to help them carry a load. Why? Can I just take just a moment? This is a little subtle. I want you to picture this. Here's a week in the faith Christian. They have lots of rules many of which are man-made, many of which are Bible-based, and they're very good. And we went over all of those a few weeks ago. And then here's a strong in the faith Christian. Listen, if the strong in the faith make up their mind, they're going to live their Christian life always taking advantage of all the liberties in Christ that they have, then they're going to collide with the weak in the faith. And by the way, when that happens, what are the weak in the faith going to do? We know from the text, those that were here, the weak in the faith are going to see the strong in the faith doing things that they think are wrong, and they're going to what them? Starts with a J. They're going to judge them. Now watch. The strong in the faith may get a little irritated and a little frustrated, but at the end of the day, here's what they can do. You know what? That's your problem. You irritate me a little bit, but I'm moving on. Forget you, right? I, I, I can't live my life worrying about your scruples and hesitations. And they can blow them off. No real harm done, but please remember this. The weak in the faith person, they're being damaged. They're being grieved. They're being greatly damaged. Thought of it this way. You can live with that. Okay, you're going to judge me. I'll live with that. They're being hurt. They're really receiving the brunt of this. Remember this. When the strong and the weak encounter, the strong are pretty much always going to hurt the weak. And so Paul's saying you have an obligation not to steamroll them. I don't want to re-preach last week's message, but I want you to get this thought. Last week we said liberty matters. Liberty does matter. We're not just going to forsake our liberty in Christ and do everything that everyone in Anderson County 
thinks that everyone has to do and don't do any of the things that everyone in Anderson County thinks that you can't do. We're not going to just constantly put out feelers and always be adjusting why liberty matters. Listen, I don't want a new Christian in Christ being burdened at Graceview with a lot of man-made rules. I don't want them going through life that way. I don't want our mature Christians living that way. And I sure don't want an unsafe person looking at Graceview saying, well, that must be what Christianity is. It's rule-keeping and law-keeping. And I guess that's how they go to heaven by keeping all these rules and laws. They're a little weird, but that's how they go to heaven, I guess. I don't want to give that message. And so we learn that liberty matters much. But here's the other three points from last week. Very important. Love matters more. Ministry matters more. Conscience, not living with a bruised conscience, a conscience that is clean, matters much. Would you write this down? God expects more out of people who are stronger in certain areas. Did you write that down? God expects more out of people who are stronger in certain areas. I've given you three to write. And you say, Jeff, you're taking a little bit of liberties with the text. I am. But I think this could be borne out through the rest of the New Testament. Some of you this morning are very, you're physically strong. You're stronger than others. Some of you are financially stronger than others. Some of you are spiritually stronger than others. One I did not put in the list. Some of you, your personality is stronger than others. You literally, God has gifted you with a personality. You are a natural leader. Did you catch it? Some of you physically strong. Some of you are financially not just stable. You're strong. Some of you spiritually are strong. Some of you in your personality is very strong. Here's my question. What are you doing with that? You who are the strongest among us physically, you're like, well, I'm young and strong. and So I pretty much sleep all day and eat and just veg out. That's what I do with it. God's given you a gift that you should be using when you hear things. Hey, what's going on? You need that done. You need that. Let me do that. Hey, let me volunteer. I've got a strong back. Let me help you out. The strong help the weak. The financially strong. They don't just go through life looking for themselves. They help the weak. The spiritually strong help the weak. The strong personality helps the weak. Again, do not steamroll them. Do not go through life just bullying people because you can. You seen that? Physically strong, they go through life knocking people around, intimidating. Strong personality, intimidating people. Strong financially, some people think this way. Hey, I'm blessed, I've got this. I'm going to find some people that are really in a hard time. I'm going to lend them things. I'm going to make more money on the backs of the poor and the foolish. Don't do that. Don't go through life steamrolling people and here we're talking about spiritually there's an obligation why God holds the strong responsible to help the weak it's the law of Christ so Paul continues you say Jeff boy a few weeks ago we looked at a message to the the weak in the faith they were not to judge but the strong in the faith been getting hammered every week since right I know Paul has a lot more to say to the strong he says don't avoid the weak don't despise the weak. Don't grieve the weak by your actions. They say you're doing it. It's just tearing them up inside. Especially last week. Don't cause them to trip because they see you doing something they think is wrong and they go do something really wrong because, hey, I saw you doing that so it must be okay for me to do this and this over here is sin. Or they think what you're doing is wrong. It's not, but they think it is and so they follow you. They respect you and so they end up committing sin of conscience bruising their conscience, following your lead, and they're being destroyed in the process. And now we come to chapter 15, and Paul says, after all the don'ts, don't avoid them, don't despise them, don't grieve them, don't make them stumble, now bear with them. Wow, don't do these things, now bear with them, help them, come along beside them. One more quote from Halverson. Halverson sees this issue as a test. I want to throw it out to you this morning. Test yourselves. He says, quote, and this is, this is put aside false modesty, just be honest. Are you a strong in the faith Christian? If so, Halverson says, quote, If a Christian feels he has matured in the faith, has gone more deeply than others, the evidence of his maturity will not be criticism of the weaker brother. By the way, anybody could do that. It's not just criticizing. Oh, how foolish. Tired of them. He continues, 
This would indicate immaturity. The evidence of maturity will be his love, concern, sympathy, and care for the weaker brother. That's the evidence that you really have. Anybody can spot and say, I'm tired of them. I'm frustrated with them. I'm irritated with them. Yes, but do you come along beside them? Can you help them? Sympathize. Oh, I remember when I lived under that. I remember when I thought that was wrong. I remember when I went through life with a bruised ego. I'm not ego, but a bruised conscience. Constantly confessing things to God that really weren't sin. I remember those. Well, I wish I could help you. And to be able to keep that bridge of ministry to you, I need to be patient with you. And I need to keep contact with you. God calls the strong to be leaders. God calls the strong to be leaders. You have a note in your, in your handout. I want you to fill in the second blank with me, would you? You should be able to guess the word. In Christ's kingdom, this is different than worldly system. In Christ's kingdom, leaders do lead. So leaders lead. I'm going to interrupt this idea for a second. Leaders lead. They are out front. Leaders are making decisions. They have to. Leaders are making decisions and they're affecting the group. Leaders do lead. But in Christ's kingdom, leaders what? Any guesses? Serve. Good, y'all are way ahead of me. That's exactly the way it is in the kingdom of Christ. Yes, you lead. Yes, you make decisions. Yes, you are out front. But in Christ's kingdom, leaders serve. Let me give you a hint. This is not godly leadership. Here's the mentality. Hey, I'm the leader. Everybody's going to do what I want to do. That's a dead giveaway for selfishness, insecurity, bullying. I'm the leader. I cannot remember what cartoon that was from, but there's this voice in my head. I know there's this little character. I'm the leader. I don't remember who it is. If you know who that is, please tell me because it bugs me. I'm the leader. Like, by the way, if you have to constantly remind people that you are the leader, you are either in a really bad situation because I do remember 2 Corinthians. Paul had to remind the Corinthians that he was the leader. Boy, he did it kicking and screaming. He hated to remind them, but he needed to. If you're always having to remind people of that, you are probably in a difficult situation or you're not the leader and you're trying to be the leader or you're extremely insecure about being the leader. Is there a time every now and then? Yeah, you may have to remind people. Okay, well, that's the leader. But you don't have to tell everybody all the time. In Christ's kingdom, leaders lead, but leaders serve. Godly leaders, here's the mentality, they see their God-given position as being the strong, as a position of leadership, as a chance to do what is best for the rest of the group, not just to please themselves. Verse number two words it this way. Let each of us please his neighbor. Now that is not saying do whatever your neighbor wants. Notice the qualification. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. It's like a little child. Nobody in here is going to, I hope you wouldn't, say, oh, I'm always going to give my kids everything they ever want. That's a huge mistake. So the text is not saying do everything that the weak in the faith always want done. No. What is best for them at this moment? Would you join me? Flip over 1 Corinthians. I alluded to this last week, but I want to touch on it this week. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read it, and I really wanted to because I think it, it kind of really comes to bear on our text over the last five weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would. Flip over there. 1 Corinthians 9, just a few pages away. Quick question. How many of you have a job? Raise your hand. Got a job? All right. Just be honest. How many of you at your job? You're like, I kind of like getting paid. Right? You're like, yeah. And you're like, hey. Don't raise your hand on this next question. Would you do your job if you did not get paid? And some of you are like, no way. I do it for the money. I have to have the, I didn't ask if you, if, let me reword it. Some of you are sitting here, you honestly think this. If I could, I can't do it without getting paid because we do have bills and I have responsibilities. But you know what? I love what I do. I literally would do it without getting paid. If I could, I would. Say, so Jeff, what does this have to do with anything? Watch. We're talking about how the strong in the faith have liberty to do anything that is within the law of Christ, led by the Holy Spirit. They get an understanding of what really pleases God. They understand grace. So they have all these options available to them. But 
what, what Paul's calling for in Romans 14 and 15 is sometimes you live in restricting, you restrict your liberty for the sake of ministry or you restrict your liberty for the sake of love or for the conscience of the other person. And you're like, why would I do that? Paul is going into Corinth and he's writing a letter back to them and he's saying, do you remember when I first came to you? I should have been paid by you, but I did not receive any payment from you. Literally, Paul went to Corinth, worked as a tent maker, a leather worker. He worked with leather to pay his bills so that he could preach the gospel for free. Now he's writing back to them. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to hit some quick highlights before we read verse 15. He's saying, it is right for us who are in the ministry to be able to eat and to drink. And we should be able, if God supplies, to take a believing wife with us and to be able to supply for our believing wife. Peter has a wife. He kind of alludes to that. He says, you don't send soldiers out to battle without the nation supplying their needs. He talks about a farmer and a shepherd tending to the flocks and to the, and to the crop. Yes, they eat of the crops, and yes, they partake of the milk of the flock. He talks about an, um, an ox that is, that is treading in the field. You feed the ox. You don't starve the ox. He's working. Again, he talks about a plowman and a thresher, how they receive from the crops. And ultimately, he gets right down to it. He says, hey, you remember the Old Testament? Those that worked in the temple of God? Do you know how they lived? By the offerings that came in the, the altar offerings? Do you know how the priests lived? They ate the meat. Some of that meat, yes, it was only offered to the Lord, but most of it, you know what happened to it? The priests ate the meat. You're like, really? Yeah, that's how they lived. And so Paul's saying, I should have expected to get paid of you. Not on the screen, but verse 14 says, in the same way, as all those examples... The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should, live, should get their living by the gospel. Earlier, he, he words it in verse 11. We go back there. If we, have sown, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? So we've sown spiritual. We should be reaping material. You say, Jeff, why are you saying all of this? What does this have to do with the weaker brother? Verse 15. But I've made no use of any of the, these rights. Well, he sure is putting a good guilt trip on him. No, watch. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He is not asking them to take up a big offering and make up for the year and a half that he preached there for free. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of grace. He says, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Necessity. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, you know, I preach it for free because I have to preach this. I want to do it for free, but I have to do it. I have to share what's been given to me. If I do this, verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. And he, will, he, will, he is rewarded. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. I'm going to answer to God. God says, hey, by the way, I'm going to tell you the most important piece of information on the whole planet. Here's how people go to heaven. You have it. Go tell people. Whoa, I'm going to give an answer for this. I have a stewardship. I'm responsible. And Paul says, to you, I did it for free. I taught for free. Verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. I could have demanded payment, but I didn't. For though, now here he shifts gears. Not only does Paul give up his right to get paid, which we all agreed, we, we're going to work, we kind of like getting paid, it helps. Verse 19, Paul says, he shifts gears, though I am free from all, I don't have to live by other people's rules, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And we looked at this last week. To the Jews, hey Paul, when you're around Jews, what do you do? He says, I became as a Jew. Act just like them. I eat what they eat. I don't eat the things they don't eat. I observe the days they observe. I'm not, I'm not harming the text by reading that. That's what he means. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? Paul, you know you don't have to do that to go to him. I know. In order to win Jews. To those under the law. We could say, again, continue the argument of, of the Jews, or we could say these are Gentiles who are on the cusp or maybe are proselytes of Judaism. To those under the law, Paul says, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law. I was doing kind of the same things, but in my heart I wasn't doing it for the same reasons they were doing. Why are you doing this, Paul? That I might win those under the law. You see what he's doing? With them I'm that way, with this group I'm that way. Why? That I might win them. 
Verse 21. To those outside the law. These are Gentiles who don't even know anything about the Old Testament. Paul, how do you behave around them? I became as one outside the law. Oh, so you broke the law of God? No, watch the parenthetical statement. Not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ. So there's where I'm careful. They don't know about the Old Testament. I'll go as far as I can with them. But I do know I can only go so far when the Holy Spirit, because I love Him and love God, I can't do certain things. But I'm going I'm to find the common ground that I can. Why? That I might win those that are outside the law. And then he brings this argument. To the weak, those who have a long list of do's and don'ts. Paul says, I became as the weak. I, I, I can do that. Why? That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Please don't read that and think, this guy is a hypocrite. No. He says that by all means, by all means, I add this phrase, all allowable means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul, let me get this straight. You know about liberty in Christ, and you could do that and that and that, but when you're with these people, you give that up. Yep. So you live under restrictions that they have. Yes, I do, to win them to Christ. Why? Catch it. Paul's last concern, here's the thing. Strong in the faith, Christian, you are under an obligation. Paul's, what he's saying is, my last concern is my pleasure. That's the last thing on the list. Just not important. Liberty matters, but love matters more. Ministry matters more. Keeping their conscience strong matters much. I have to keep the the doors and, and the lines of ministry open. Secondly, this morning. Back to Romans 15. So if you're sitting here this morning saying, okay, Jeff, hold on. I've studied the Bible. I know some of the do's and some of the don'ts. And I know there's a lot. Here in Anderson, man, we've got, we've got a lot of people have a lot more than, than the Bible gives. Jeff, come on, man. I get one shot at this life. Why would I live it doing anything other than what I want to do? Why would I do anything other than pleasing myself? I get one go around here. I know I have eternal life, so I'm just going to take advantage of my liberty in Christ and just get to heaven and I'll let the chips fall where they may. Why wouldn't I do that? Second thing this morning, Paul is teaching us not only do the strong have an obligation, but the strong have a pattern. And the pattern is very clearly in verses 3 and 4, and it's twofold. Verse 3, the pattern is Christ giving us an example. Christ gave us an example. Verse 3, so here's the question, my question. Why would I live in a way other than pleasing myself? Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. Christ did not please himself. Can I propose this to you? If anyone ever lived who deserved to do what he wanted to do and cast aside what other people wanted and just throw that away, I'm doing what I want to do. If anyone ever deserved that, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 38. Take me just a moment to get there. John chapter 6, verse 38. Watch this verse. For I, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Read it again, because I flew through it. Now look at it. For I, Jesus says, have come down from heaven. Jesus, why would you come down from heaven? It's heaven. People here are wanting to go there. Why would anyone there come down here? Jesus says, for I have come down. He's literally on the earth as he says this. I have come down from heaven. Why? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm not here doing my will. I'm doing the will of him. Who sent me? A strong in the faith Christian. Can I say it this way? Anything you ever give up in life for the sake of another, okay, I'm going to restrict. I'm not going to do that. Or I'm going to go with them. I'm going to do the things as far as I can. I'm going to go down that road with them. You're never doing more or giving up more than Christ has given up. So many ways, Christ does not serve himself. Three things, though, came to the top of my mind. Number one, Christ did not serve himself in his incarnation. This is what we preach on at Christmas time this word incarnation, carn meaning flesh, meat, humanity. Go ahead and give you the note that goes with that. Christ did not serve himself in his incarnation. Why? What happened? According to Philippians 2, the Bible says Jesus emptied himself. You say, did he stop being God? No, he did not stop being God. He just brought manhood. He started being a man. He brought manhood into Godhead. He's still God. He becomes a man 2,000 years ago. But here's how he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his visible glory as God to take on manhood. 
So, Jeff, what does that mean? No one could tell by looking at Jesus. Literally, if we were 2,000 years ago and this were a synagogue and Jesus was sitting in our midst, no one would know that God, God the Son, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God was sitting in their midst. No one would be able to look and say, hey, I found him. It's very obvious. It's this person right here. No one could tell. Why? He emptied himself. Not pleasing himself, pleasing the Father. That's how he lived. Why should I live this way? Because Christ lived this way. thought of this the other day and I got to tell you I was mainly thinking of people in the nursing home a, a person I have no specific person but there is a person today in one of our local nursing homes I don't know their name I just know they fit the following watch this people who have been powerful or wealthy or beautiful or famous find being obscure especially difficult Say that again. People who have been powerful, wealthy, beautiful, or famous find being obscure especially difficult. Why? Because they've tasted it. If someone of us, you say, I've never been powerful, never been wealthy, never been beautiful, never been famous, then you may not appreciate quite as much what verse 3 is talking about than the person who's at least tasted it. There are people in the nursing home today, I'm thinking of someone, and right now they're looking outside of a big plate glass or they're staring at a, at a, at a, at a, a, a little fish bowl with goldfish in it and people are walking right by them. But in their day, when they walked in the plant, everybody knows, hey, he's here. And that was just a few years ago. They were powerful. When they walked in the office, everyone straight, good morning, sir, good morning, hey, good morning, Always acknowledged. And now they're sitting in a chair looking out a window and people go by and their mind's still there. They're just not powerful anymore. Nobody just hey, morning, nobody pays them a lick of attention. And some used to be wealthy and they were robbed or they squandered it or a downturn, something happened. They are no longer wealthy. They're in, a, they're in a, the poorest section of the nursing home, but they remember what it was like. There's people today in the nursing home, literally when they walked in the room, they were the most strikingly beautiful person in every room they ever walked in. They were all like, whoa. And today, you would never know it. They were famous, maybe even famous in their own little realm, right? Music, a lot of times, that realm, boy, they could really play that instrument or that instrument. They could really sing. And in their little element, they were famous in their day. And now no one knows who they are. That's tough. Once you've tasted it, to go back to obscurity. Christ is the darling of heaven. The Son of God lays it all aside comes to earth. Why? Not pleasing himself, pleasing others. Strong in the faith Christian, Paul is saying, can you give up some luxuries of liberty since Christ has given up all of that for you? Second thing, he pleased not himself in his life of service. Some of us are reading the book of Mark. Did you catch it? Those of you reading Mark with me? Did you catch it? He ministers and he ministers and he teaches and he preaches and over here he's healing and he's now feeding Hey, guys, you need a break, and he pulls them apart, and let's go over here, and they go across the lake, and lo and behold, there's a crowd of people waiting. Oh, we've got to do more ministry. Okay, let's go over here, and let's get away from the crowd. We're really going to take a break this time. No, there's no break. Everywhere he goes, people are constantly in a row. I have no idea how they did it. He's just constantly giving and giving and not pleasing himself. I read that, and I don't know that they ever took the vacation they were supposed to be taking. They're just giving and giving. Christ didn't please himself in his incarnation, in his life of service, and he surely did not please himself in his substitutionary death. Two key words there, substitutionary death. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. So hey, not to please ourselves, verse 1, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here's what happened. Christ came into the world and we killed him. Not in this text, but early in the book of Romans, what, what we need to remember is God the Father poured his wrath on Christ on the cross. Jesus came into the world knowing that mankind who hates God and lives in rebellion against God, they will crucify me, but worse than human crucifixion, God the Father will pour his wrath because sin must be paid for. Listen to me, this is important. This, this is like more important than anything else in the message today. Your sin, you have sin. Your sin must be paid for. It will be paid for. 
Your sin will be paid for one of two ways. Either Jesus paid for it on the cross, that is sufficient, or you will pay for it eternally in hell. One or the other is going to happen. I'm pleading with you this morning. You say, Jeff, I don't even think this is a real salvation message. This is a salvation point. Why would you pay for your sins eternally in hell when Christ already took the wrath of God and the reproaches of mankind against God? He's like, I'll take it all. I'm not pleasing myself. I'm doing what is needed for those I love. You're weak. You're in big trouble. I'm strong. I'm going to enter. I'm going to take your hell on me on the cross. If you're, if you're not a Christian today, please listen. You do not need to wait till the end of this sermon. You don't have to move your vocal cords. I am literally telling you, I've told you enough about all that you need to know to go to heaven. Here's all it is. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He died for my sins. He is the Lord. I receive Him as my Lord. I don't have to lead you in a prayer. Right where you are, you could right now. God, I've never done that. I'm doing it right now. Jesus... I do believe your death on the cross was enough. I receive it at this moment. I receive your forgiveness right now. I take it. You died a substitutionary death for me. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to spit in your face and turn away from that and pay for my own sin. No. I want you to have paid. Thank you. Receive it right now, right where you are. You will be saved in the moment. That's what I did as a nine-year-old. Do that. Somebody needs to be a Christian now. Okay, that was a side little note, but it's needed. The reproaches of those who reproach the Father fall on Christ, and He knows what He's going into. Strong, you have an obligation. Strong, you have a pattern. The pattern is the example of Christ, but it's also... We see it in the scriptures, how the scriptures give us instruction. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Again, for whatever was written in former days, he's obviously talking about what we call the Old Testament. Paul says it was written for our instruction. I cannot read this, nor can any preacher really preach on this passage without going to the obvious text that goes with it. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 16 and 17. Paul writing to his young protege, I believe his favorite young protege, a pastor. Paul tells Timothy, watch it. All, everybody hear this this morning. This is God's word. Watch what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So the word is, is really implied, should be used twice there. It's implied. So let me read it with that word is twice. Here we go again. All Scripture, how much of it? All Scripture is, the King James uses the word inspired, and we usually pause and tell what inspired means. So the ESV here goes and tells us exactly what it means. All Scripture is breathed out by God. How'd that happen? Forty human authors, God, the Holy Spirit, picked them up from being just normal men, picked them up, breathed his words into them, and it came out in their writings. That's how it happened. Verse 16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. Profitable for what? Teaching, reproof. Hey, teaching you this. Here's what's right. Reproof. Oh, here's what's wrong in your life. Watch this. For correction. Here's how you get it right. And for training in righteousness. The King James again uses the word instruction. That's what we're talking about in Romans. Instruction. Do you see that list? Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong in your life. Here's how to get it right. Here's how to keep it right. The Bible's profitable. It's all God breathed. It's all profitable. Verse 17. That the man of God, the messenger of God, which you need to be, may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's all inspired. This next note, if you are taking notes, be careful how you fill it out because it's a little tricky. I want to say it correctly. Here we go. All Scripture is profitable. I could say all Scripture is instructional. All Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is instructional. Why? Because it's all breathed out by God. All Scripture... And you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Jeff, I'll be honest with you. There's some sections that are super boring. And when I come to those in my reading, I just skip them. Or I'm doing really good until I hit those sections. 
And they're usually like around Genesis later on, and you start getting to some of those genealogies, and you're like, I just can't make it past it. It's profitable. All Scripture is profitable. Why? Because it's the words of God, breathed out by God. Now, here we go. Got to get this right. All Scripture is equally inspired. All of it's equally inspired. But I'm going to propose to you, it is not equally profitable. And you're like, what? Did he just blaspheme? All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is equally inspired. All Scripture is profitable. It's just not equally profitable. Some Scripture is more profitable. All equally inspired. Some's more. You're like, well, what do you mean? John 3, 16 is pretty profitable. Romans 8, 28, very profitable. Romans 10, 13, more profitable than the genealogies. You're saying, so we should not read the genealogies. No, it proves that God knows every life. It proves that people live and die, and we make an influence, and we... We influence lives after us. There are lessons to be learned in the genealogies, but those are not John 3.16. I'm not pitting Scripture against Scripture. I'm just saying some is more profitable. Now back to Romans. Look at this. Because here's my question. I read this this week, and I'm going to tell you guys, I just struggle. Because here's my question. Actually, I'm going to get to that in a second. I need to make another quick point. Verse 4, look at it. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It was written in former days for our instruction, so we need to read all of the Bible, that through endurance and encourage, the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Quick question. I'm going to ask three questions. Do you need endurance today? Don't raise your hand. Is there anybody in here? Don't raise your hand. You need endurance. You're like, I'm wearing down. Anybody in here, you, this is you. Jeff, I feel exhausted with life. Don't raise your hand. Did anybody walk in discouraged this morning? If that is you, I'm going to promise you, you're not the only one here this morning that walked in discouraged. We have all been there. We will all go there. So here's my next question. What is your plan to get some endurance and get some encouragement? Because this text tells me God is the God of endurance. He's the God of encouragement. Here's what that tells me. He's got it by the boatloads. You need some. What's your plan to get some? God's got it. He's got endurance. Man, you're going to keep going. You're like, I just don't know this. I think this week this might be it. I spoke with a man just... In the last 24 hours, he was at the end. He just had given and given and given. But he made it. He made it. What's your plan? If you want to write it down. God is the God of encouragement. He is the God of endurance. But his primary means, here's what I'm going to say. You may be going through life, and God can because he has so much. God can just, you know, bop you over the head with some endurance. Okay. Whoa, all right, great. He could smack you over the head with some encouragement. He can just kind of well it up with that. It's great. It's awesome. I'm encouraged now. He can do that. But I'm going to tell you, his primary means to provide encouragement and endurance is through two specific things with his Holy Spirit at the middle. Here's what I find. This is what I find. God's Holy Spirit uses his word and he uses his people. God uses his word and he uses his people. You say, I'm needing some endurance. I'm needing some encouragement. Spend time in the Word. Spend time with God's people. Now look at verse 4. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Wednesday I'm doing a devotion for a law firm. I'm not going to use this text. I have no idea what I'm walking into. I don't even know how they got my name. But uh, a, a law firm and... I'm going to walk in there. I used to do devotions before my ball games when I was a coach. I would do like quick little hitters. You know what? Listen, verse 4 is a verse I could pull out. It could stand on its own, not even in the context. I'm doing no harm to Scripture. I could just tell my ball team, hey, guys, listen, read the, read the Bible. It's good for encouragement. It's good for instruction, and it's good to help you endure. Hey, let's, let's spend some time reading the Word of God this week, and I would not be harming the meaning of the text. But here's what I had to ask this week as a pastor. This was my job. Okay, Paul, verse 4 is true on its own, but what does it have to do with the whole weaker brother? What does it have to do with anything? 
And I'm reading along, and for years I've read this, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's great. What does that mean? That's kind of weird. I don't know how it flows. Look at it. Just look at the text. Hey, you who are strong, you have an obligation. Please your neighbor. Build them up. Christ didn't please himself. The Bible's good for instruction. Okay. That's good. These are like a lot of little quick points that have no connection. I have no idea what the point of the message is today, Jeff. You kind of got energetic a few times. I really don't see how it all seems together. This is important. What is the specific instruction Paul is aiming at? Here it is. Paul's exhortation not to please yourself is the obvious conclusion of the weaker brother argument. Here it is. Coming to the end of this argument, strong and the weak, strong, don't please yourself. Weak, don't judge them, don't please yourself. Mainly to you strong, don't please yourself. And then he says the Old Testament's good for instruction. What does that mean? Here it is. The main instruction of the Old Testament is this. It's in your note. If reading the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches this. A life of temporary sacrifice, not pleasing yourself, is a small thing compared to the hope of an eternal relationship with God. Read the Old Testament. It's all through there. Over and over and over, Paul's saying, yes, it's good, it's profitable, it's good for instruction. But if you see anything when you read the Old Testament, learn this, a life of temporary sacrifice, temporary costing. You're not going to exercise all your liberties. You're going to be restricted. You're going to put up with some things. It's worth it. It's a small thing in comparison with this eternal life with God in His glory. It's a very little thing. It's a light, momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. And right here is what I could do. I'm not going to do it. Here's what we could do. We could pray and say, hey, next week we're going to do a series on the Old Testament. We're going to talk about Abraham. How Abraham was a big fish in a big pond. Probably the best civilization of the day, maybe Egypt at that time. 4,000 years ago, Paul lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Wealthy man, big fish, big pond. God comes along. He doesn't even know God. God says, hey, you're doing really well here. Leave it all. I want you to go be a homeless person. And you know what Abraham did? Okay, God, whatever you say. And he went looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And he never found it in this life, but I promise you right now, Abraham's doing pretty well right now. That's the point. Don't please yourself. We could go to Joseph, his great-grandson. He's done wrong, mistreated, sold into slavery, lied against, put in prison, forgotten. And then God, in his providence, turns the table. And now Joseph ends up the second most powerful man in the world. And what does Joseph do? He uses his place of strength to provide for other people. Don't live for yourself. God's got a plan. We can look forward from there. Moses, you're one of the most powerful people in the world. You are a prince of Egypt. And Moses decides, I'm going to forget that. I'm going to pull away from that. I could do that. That is my right. I was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. I am a very powerful person. I am in line. I could, li- I could live the rest of my life as a powerful person. But I'm going to associate with slaves because they're the people of God. And I'm going to take a huge step down in the eyes of man. But I'm looking for an eternal relationship with God. Don't please yourself. It pays off later. Read the Bible. But I'm telling you, if all you do is you read Job to commiserate and self-pity, oh, I've read Job, and I realize how bad I've got it. I think I'm just like Job. And you just wallow in self-pity. You miss the point. God is behind the scenes going, I'm getting glory. Job has no clue what's going on. God is winning a bet with Satan. That's the point. And Job gets to stay faithful. Everybody in here, you get tired. We all get discouraged. Nobody's immune. Weak. Weak in the faith, Christian, listen. You need the strong. Strong in the faith, Christian, listen. You've been made strong to help the weak. It's one of the main reasons we need to utilize church. I'm going to do a quick plug and then we're going to the third point. Church attendance is vital. I don't do this enough. Say, why is it so important? Church attendance unites you with two of the very things that God uses to give endurance and encouragement, the Word of God and the people of God. I don't understand this. I I hope I don't fall prey to this. I don't understand. I see this over and over. 
Folks will come and they'll visit this church and many other churches. And you know what they do? Wow, God spoke to me. I'm so excited. And they do really great. And they, they start coming and get real faithful for a while. And then life hits them. And the devil whispers in the ear, I believe, Hey, life's gotten tough. Stop your Bible reading. Stop going to the church. Stop spending time with the people of God. And I find they fall for it. Why is that? Well, I've got some questions. I don't have all the answers. Uh, life's tough. It's hard. It's difficult. I'm going to forsake the Word of God. I'm going to forsake time with God's people. And then you wonder why you lack endurance and encouragement. I'm going to tell you that's the time to say, Devil, you're a liar. You never tell the truth. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read more in the Scriptures. I'm going to spend more time with God. Some of you, honestly, here's what's saying. I don't preach on this a lot. And I don't guilt people. I just, I'm not going to do it. But there's some of you, here's what you need to do. You're like, I'm just kind of barely making it by. But you don't come out on Wednesday night. Because a lot of prayer and effort and time goes into Wednesday night. And you could be getting more endurance and more encouragement. Why? More of God's Word. More of God's people. That's what He uses. And there was my pastor spiel for the moment. Last thing. Strong, you have an obligation. Strong, you have a pattern. Christ didn't please himself. The word of God instructs us. The life that does not please itself is the worthy life. It calls for this. And then the third and final thing, the strong have a purpose. And I believe the purpose is to equip the weak. I believe the purpose, one of the purposes of the strong and the faith person is to equip. Now listen, you cannot equip the weak and the faith person if you're offending them, grieving them, and avoiding them. You can't. You will have no ministry to them, but you need to have a ministry to them. John chapter 17. Can we flip over there? you got a Bible. John 17. John 17. Literally, I don't know, maybe an hour. I don't know, hour and a half, two hours before the Lord will be arrested in the garden, betrayed by Judas. He prays to the Father. I cannot go over all the prayer, but first half of the prayer of John 17, Jesus is praying for his 11 disciples. Father, bless them. Glorify them. Lord, help me. Glorify me so that I can glorify you over and over. Watch verse 20. John 17, verse 20. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, here's what he prays. He's to the Father. I do not ask for these only, meaning the 11. Father, I do not ask for these only. I'm going to expand my prayer. But also for those who will believe. So these have already believed. Father, I'm praying for those who will believe. That's Jeff Bartlett. Hang on, wait a minute, I'm in the Bible. I'm praying also for those who will believe. Let me get my, my word here. In me, through their word. So Father, I'm praying for these 11, but I'm praying for those who are going to get saved by believing what these guys will write and say. Verse 21. What's your prayer, Christ? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Catch that. Christ is in the Father, the Father's in the Son. That they also, hey, this is for Graceview. This is for every person that's a Christian in this room right now. Every, every Christian that's listening to this at any point in the future. He's saying, Father, just as you are in me and I in you, my prayer is that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Do you see it over and over? I don't have time to dissect that. I don't have time. See it over and over? What's Christ praying? Lord, keep this group together. Don't let them scatter. A lot of investment went into these 11. Now, Lord, for those who are going to be saved because of their work, make them one, unify them, bring them together. Romans 15, look at verse 5. Romans 15, look at verse 5. Now Paul prays, same type of prayer, same kind of prayer. Jesus prayed for unity, harmony. Now Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, grace view, that grant you to live in such harmony with one another, harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that, watch this word, together you may with one voice glorify the Father and glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it over and over? Paul's praying, Father, unify them. Let them live in harmony. Let them live together. Let them live with. With is important. We're not going to always be talking about weak and strong and sacrificing for the sake of others and not offending and not grieving and know what the Bible says but be willing to give ground where you can. We're just not always going to be preaching on it. 
But Graceview, if you will buy into Romans 14 and early part of Romans 15, we will not have problems. We will keep the main thing the main thing. And we'll be a healthy congregation. That's our goal. Do you see it? Harmony together. If you want to write it down. There was a little nugget in verse number 5. It was tucked away in there. The surest way for us to live in harmony with each other is to be in one accord with Christ. That's the surest way. It's there in verse 5. That you will live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. I want you to picture a huge conference center. Big open room. All the little partition walls are pushed back. There's 100 pianos. Got it? 100 pianos. Your task is to tune those 100 pianos to each other. You're like, oh my goodness. A hundred pianos, tune them to each other. That's going to take like months. And by the time we finish, some are so out of tune again. I don't know that that can really be done. It can be done if you will not try to tune the pianos to each other. If you will go through, get a tuning fork, one tuning device, and go to this piano, tune it to this. Go to the second piano, tune it to this. Third one, fourth one, 99th one, 100th one. Have them all tuned to one tuning fork. They will be in tune with each other. Here's how we will be in tune and have harmony and together and be with. If you will grow toward Christ, We'll get along great. That's the plan. With Christ. Every Christian starts out as weak. Every Christian begins as weak. Every Christian begins as uninformed. And I'm going to propose to you, that's why we need the strong in the faith to train the weak. Strong in the faith, you have a purpose. It is to equip the weak. I feel confident in saying this. Each current generation, here's been the plan of God for 2,000 years. Each current generation of mature Christians should always be training the next generation of strong leaders. They're not strong leaders yet. They're going to be strong leaders. Some of you in this room right now, you are strong Christians. You have been training other Christians, but you started just like everyone else. Just as ignorant as you could be, uninformed, weak, a lot of extra rules. Not the right things, uninformed in the scriptures, but now you are actually teaching other people. I'm winding down my message with these questions. You ready? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian yet? Answer, honest, inside. Be honest, just you and God. Are you a Christian? If you say, well, of course I'm a Christian. Why? Why? Why do you think you're a Christian? You say, well, I'm an American. We're a Christian country. Or you say, I go to church. Of course I'm a Christian. Or my family is a Christian family. Yes, I'm a Christian. That is not a Bible reason. If that came into your mind, of course I'm a Christian. I was baptized. Those are not Bible reasons why your sins are forgiven and you will have eternal life. Are you a Christian? If you can honestly say, Jeff, I have a Bible reason. I am a Christian because there was a time in my life I acknowledged Jesus as my Lord. I repented of my sins. I received the forgiveness of God because God promised I could have forgiveness through Jesus' death. I received it. I know that. If you have another reason, you are not a Christian. But if you can say, yes, I've done that. I know I'm a Christian. I've not added anything to it. It's purely by grace. Most of you just said yes. Most of you, you're right now thinking, that's me, I'm a Christian. Very serious second question. Where are you on the path to teaching and training others? Where are you on the path? There's no shame to being a new Christian who is uninformed on the things of Scripture. There's no shame in that. But there is shame in remaining an uninformed Christian. There is shame in that. There is shame in accepting, I'm an uninformed Christian... I'm always a receiver. I'm never a giver. I'm never a reproducer. I'm always the weak one. If you're sitting here and you say, I've been saved 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you cannot point to an area in your life where you are investing and training other Christians who are weaker in the faith, then I've got to ask you, what are you waiting on? What is your plan to get strong in the faith? Which is met with silence. That's good. You need to really think about this. You that are strong in the faith, you that are teaching correctly. How did you get strong? You're like, well, 
my story is I, I just started spending time alone with God. And I started for myself reading the Word of God. And I, I learned how to pray. That was very important. Learned how to pray. And I put myself under good teaching and pre- Bible stuff, not just stories. I don't need cotton candy. I've kind of been eating on the meat and the vegetables of the Word of God. And I've just kind of been walking with the Lord. Not always obedient like I should. But as I learn things, I, by God's grace, I've been kind of putting it into my life and obeying the things that He's shown me. That's how you became a strong Christian. Weak in the faith Christian, what's your plan? What are you going to do? You need to, by grace, acknowledge, I need to get under some strong in the faith Christians. And I need to start asking the tough questions. Why do I believe what I do? Are my beliefs in line with the Word of God? Do I have a performance-based Christianity? Do I have a grace-based Christianity that causes me to love God so much that I want to glorify Him in the lives of others? And I find myself living with some liberty, but also sometimes some restricted liberty because I need to invest. I want to move along the path of teaching and training. Verse 6. Our last note. Paul says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father. You see it? Verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Write this down. The great underlying purpose of all created history. This is such a simple note, but it is true. The great underlying purpose of all created history is still the glory of God. You, listening to me right now, you are a made thing. You are made for the glory of God. You were not made to just go through life doing what you want to do, pleasing self. You were made to serve others, living a life, temporarily of sacrifice because the joy and the hope of an eternal relationship with God and His glory is worth it. That is not how you earn heaven, but that's how you help others get to heaven and help them in their relationship with the Lord. How is God glorified? Three things, and I'm done. God is glorified, according to verse 6 and 7, when weak Christians grow in their knowledge of God. That glorifies God. Weak Christians, I didn't know that about God. He is way more gracious than I ever thought he is. Yes, he is. He is way more holy than I ever thought he is. Yes, he is. He is way bigger. He is far stronger. He is far more wise. He is far more all-knowing. Yes, he's more everything than you ever thought he was. That glorifies God. Here's one. When strong Christians make willing sacrifices for God's sake, God is glorified. And as we see in verse 6, verse 6, When all Christians, the strong and the weak, unify their voices together to praise God. God is glorified. Hey, listen, it's not about you. Never was. Never will be. You get in on something. You get in on the glory of God. You're going to love it. Help spread His fame now. Weak. Put yourself under the teaching of the strong and the faith. Strong and the faith. Don't despise them. Don't avoid them. Don't grieve them. Don't cause them to trip. Help them bear with the struggles that they're going through in life. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, I pray for our congregation.